We didn't love freedom enough. And even more, we had no awareness of the real situation. We hurried to submit. We submitted with pleasure. We purely and simply deserved everything that happened afterward. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Gulag Archipelago. Hey, my name is Zach, and this is the Plaid Jacket Philosopher, the podcast for tradespeople and the blue-collar middle class. I'm open to punch a few holes in the stereotypes that surround blue-collar workers and hopefully share a lot of the stories behind how we got into our line of work and the honest joy you can get from working outside of the office space. The plan is to mix in interviews as well as some solo stories from job sites, fatherhood, and personal experiences that led me to where I am today. Some will be funny, some will be personal, but hopefully any and all content here can help broaden what your opinion is of the blue-collar middle class. Ola, welcome back. Uh, sorry, I had to take a week off. You know, stuff gets crazy. The world's moving at a pretty fast pace. And I thought it was just better <laughs> to take one week off, kind of collect my thoughts, think about where kind of things are headed and what direction I wanted to take the podcast in. And uh, yeah, it just, it just, you know, it ate up a bit of my time and I wasn't really sure. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt like I, I half-assed the last episode a little bit, to be honest. And it's the first time that I've felt that way since starting this. Not that every episode is a masterpiece by any means, but at least I tried <laughs> on the other ones. But uh, so if you stuck through last week, thank you. Um, figured this week was just, it was a better idea to take it off, kind of come back, collected, uh, get everything sorted out, get my mind right and uh, in the right place for this podcast episode. And so now if you're looking at the title of this episode, you may think, oh no, he's lost it. Uh, he's putting Latin up for titles now. But, you know, it's it, it, that saying, and so I'll just, say it right now it's um principi obsta a finem respice and what that means is resist the beginnings and consider the end and that's going to become very relevant very quickly because uh over the last couple weeks i've kind of been reading up a lot trying to just dig more into into reading it's what i like to do to kind of try to get my head straight and kind of reset my thinking or reorient it and uh, one of the books that I read, and, you know, I mean, I've talked about book recommendations on here before. I'll probably do another one, I don't know, in another six months, try to do one yearly anyway. But this book, I could not recommend it enough. It's called They Thought They Were Free by Milton Mayer. That's M-A-Y-E-R. Uh, written in 1955. Basically, it's an account of 10 different random German citizens who obviously went through the rise and fall of Nazism and authoritarianism in, you know, the 1930s to 45 in Germany. And it's quite, it's quite a remarkable book, because for one, it's only 10 years removed from the fall of, you know, from the defeat of Germany, World War Two. So it's not like anything has been, or not much has been forgotten to memory. Uh, you can tell kind of throughout the reading of the book that some people are trying to compartmentalize or you know, trying to, you know, maybe alter the truth a little bit or their experience within it. But, you know, it's so well done. And he's obviously spent tons of times like he talks about, you know, having meetings with these guys, their 10th, 12th meeting. So he really gets to to know these people, these just random everyday citizens and how they managed to get swept up in the party and in the machine that ended up, you know, murdering roughly 6 million Jews, as well as countless other people, um, you know, in their death march across Europe. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable, because, you know, n- never to get hyperbolic or anything like, but, you know, history is there for us to learn from. Um, you know, you don't have to be making a direct comparison to anything 
to still glean the lessons from what people have gone through, uh, the lessons that, you know, people have tried to put to paper and really record for us in the future. And again, this book is, I don't know, what would it be, 56 years old? 66 years old. But it's, it's relevant. You know, th- those warnings of authoritarianism are still, they're always relevant. They're always going to be relevant. Just because it's not something that we've ever encountered here before in, you know, the West, in Canada, and the United States, really, it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't take these lessons learned from somewhere else in the world with a, in some kind of different mentality and apply them to, you know, everyday life. And that's really the point of history. That's the point of reading it. Uh, it's trying to learn from it. Otherwise, you know, what is the point of recording anything that we go through? And so I'm going to warn you right off the bat, this episode is going to be pretty heavy with quotes because this book, again, I, I could not recommend it enough. And I'm being dead serious. Like it's, it's incredible. It gives just a lot of stark warnings because you hear about these people and how they how they were swept up into this. And it's not like any of them signed on to be, you know, a, a genocidal ideology. None of them signed on for that, but they were gradually swept up through different sweeping plans. And, you know, it's remarkable to hear to hear the story unfold from just your average person. You know, a couple of these guys were, I believe, 18 going through it originally in 1933 to 35. They're around 18 years old. But, you know, some of them were in their mid-40s. Uh, one of them was in their 50s, an old police officer. Um, and it's incredible because it's, you know, it swept up people who you would think already kind of had their moral compass built up. They they kind of knew who they were. They knew right from wrong. But yet this still managed to sweep them off their feet and pull them into the gears of this machine. And again, uh, if there's you know, there's no point in recording history if we're not going to learn from it or, you know, look back to see what lessons we can glean from it. So nearly all of this episode is going to be focused on chapter 13 in the book, uh, which is titled, But Then It Was Too Late. So here we go to the book. What happened here was the gradual habituation of the people, little by little, to being governed by surprise, to receiving decisions deliberated in secret, to believing that the situation was so complicated that the government had to act on information which the people could not understand, or so dangerous that even if the people could understand it, it could not be released because of national security. This separation of government from people, this widening of the gap, took place so gradually and so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps not even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure or associated with the true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes." and all the crises and reforms, real reforms too, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. So again, that's just talking about how subversive it was. You know, you you were kept distracted with things going on all the time. Uh, There were always enemies, you know, within or, you know, outside of the country. Uh, You were constantly distracted by something a lot of of a lot of it just came down to work like that is one thing that's really remarkable throughout this book is oh and sorry and the guy who's talking in this actually he was a professor so this guy's an intellectual he's a super smart guy and he was swept up into this too and that's one stark reminder like there are some people in here again like I had talked about the older police officer there was a baker there's a tailor um there was a, a shoemaker all these random people. And one thing that they had said was that they were 
so caught up with work. They were so caught up with daily life. And the other part of it, too, was that, you know, we tend to forget how the Nazi movement started. You know, it was, yes, it was a political party, but it was it was almost a, a social movement, you know, like people were required. And we got to also think that Germany was coming out of depression, right? Like they were in real hard straits economically uh, after the Treaty of Versailles and the First World War. And so they were everybody was kind of in the dumps as it was, right? And now you've got this party coming along and they promise you jobs. They promise you, you know, an ability to provide for your family. But that comes with joining the party. So you have to have your party membership. You have to swear allegiance to the National Socialist Party, also known as the Nazi Party. And then you'll work. You'll get a job. And so that was how I believe at least seven out of the ten people in this book were initially conscripted into, you know, the Nazi Party, how they became uh, a member. And it's amazing because, you know, that's when you think about it. Now, that makes sense. You know, if you can't eat, you can't afford to feed your family. And these guys come along and they're saying, oh, you know, you'll have a job. We can give you a job. You just got to swear allegiance to this party. You know, it's no big deal. We're just a political party. We would just like your support. And it's okay. You know, I've got I've got kids. I've got a wife. I've got to eat. I've got to feed them. I got to put a roof over their head. Sure, whatever it takes. I just need to get working. And that's how it slowly started to gain steam, right? Because now you don't have, you don't have any force pushing against it. You know, when you start to look around, everybody's got on a Nazi armband. Everybody's, you know, part of this party and you feel socially accepted. You know, that was another thing that I believe, I believe it was this guy, the, the intellectual, the, the professor who was mentioning how he had held out for a while, um, but, you know, you do start to feel that level of social exclusion. You're you're outside of the group. You're outside of the party. And, you know, he was lucky enough to have a job as it was. And, you know, but but he still felt that social exclusion. And that's kind of the key to this, because there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that, you know, when you've got this type of mentality that starts rolling. And again, this we're talking early. We're talking like 1933 to 1935. This is before... Anything had to do with, you know, what they what they deemed as the Jewish problem. This is just getting the gears rolling, right? Getting people on board, showing them why this is beneficial. What, you know, look what we do for you. We provide you with work. We provide you with things to do. You know, you've got all these social activities that you can do now. Look at the camaraderie that you've got. So that's where it started. So now we're going to go back to the book here. And shit, I said I was not going to say that because, again, that's how Jocko Willink always does it. So... But I don't know what else to say. Anyway, here's the book. The dictatorship and the whole process of it coming into being was above all diverting. It provided an excuse not to think for people who did not want to think anyway. I speak of my colleagues and myself, learned men, mind you. Most of us did not want to think about fundamental things and never had. There was no need to. Nazism gave us some dreadful fundamental things to think about. We were decent people and kept us so busy with continuous changes and crises and so fascinated, yes, fascinated by the machinations of the national enemies without and within, that we had no time to think about these dreadful things that were growing, little by little, all around us. Unconsciously, I suppose, we were grateful. Who wants to think? To live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me. Unless one has a much higher degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us had, ever had occasion to develop. 
Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, what all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent must someday lead to, no one more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in his field sees the corn growing. One day it is over his head. So again, you know, he's he's talking to, and keep in mind, again, like he had said, these are learned men. This is a professor. Him and his colleagues got sucked into this as well. These are kind of the intellectuals in the group, right? Like you're, you would expect these people to kind of sound an alarm. That's basically what he was even getting at. And he's trying to explain, because again, like, it's very clear in this book that that some of these people were not horrible people. And they experienced great shame. One of them, you know, they say that, you know, they, they talk about carrying that burden of shame every day. And that that's his own little heroic response to it. Because at least he doesn't just sweep it to the side. That he actually does think of it. And he's mindful of the role that he played in it. And I think that's that's telling. That's, again, that's scary. But these warnings that he's talking about, he's saying, how could you... How could you foresee it? You know, he's saying we didn't see where it was going. We couldn't tell what steps were so bad and what weren't, what were all right. And, you know, it just all of a sudden you wake up and you're in 1941 Germany and you see all of this has unfolded and it all of a sudden hits you on the head what your part in it was. And so now continuing on with the book. So how is this to be avoided among ordinary men, even highly educated ordinarily men? Frankly, I do not know. I do not see, even now. Many, many times since this has all happened, I have pondered that pair of great maxims, Principi Obsta and Finem Respice. Resist the beginnings and consider the end. But one must foresee the end in order to resist or even see the beginnings. One must foresee the end clearly and certainly and how this is to be done, by ordinary men or even by extraordinary men. Things might have changed here before they went as far as they did. They didn't. But they might have. And everyone counts on that might. And so again, like you can you can hear it in the way that he's discussing it. Like there's, you know, there's real shame. There's real regret in that. In the fact that, you know, nobody woke up to these small steps as they were being taken. These baby steps. And as we go through this book here, he's going to break it down even better. Kind of how those little progressive steps build up. And, you know... <sighs> Why, if you're not going to, you know, react to one thing, then why are you going to react to the next? Because it's just such a small baby step forward. Like, it wasn't so bad last month. You know, how bad is this really going to be? It's the next It's the next progression. It makes sense. So now, going back to back to the book again. So this is, this is still the professor speaking. So, Pastor Niemöller spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke and said that when the Nazis attacked the communists, he was a little uneasy, but after all, he was not a communist. So he did nothing. And then they attacked the socialists, and he was a little uneasier, but still, he was not a socialist. He did nothing. And then the schools, the press, the Jews, and so on. And he was always uneasier, but still, he did nothing. And then they attacked the church, and he was a churchman. And he did something, but then it was too late. You see, my colleague went on, one doesn't see exactly where or how to move. Believe me, this is true. Each act, each occasion is worse than the last, but only a little worse. You wait for the next and the next. You wait for the one great shocking occasion, thinking that others, when such a shock comes, will join with you in resisting somehow. 
You don't want to act or even talk alone. You don't want to go out of your way to make trouble. Why not? Well, you are not in the habit of doing it. And it is not just fear, fear of standing alone, that restrains you. It is also genuine uncertainty. So again, what he's talking about here is, you know, the idea that if they had came right out of the gates talking about genocide and talking about all this this crazy eugenics and everything that they had planned, you know, everybody everybody's alarms would have went up. And we have to keep in mind here that this is a nation of 70 million people. You know, a nation that, you know, despite whatever your opinions are on it, was founded on Christian principles, right? Like this is a, a nation that you would think should have kind of been safeguarding against this. It didn't. It just took a small group of very strong-willed individuals, evil people, to persuade a country of 70 million into following along with this. And again, so he's talking about you keep waiting for that one that one instance that really wakes everybody up at a time and it never comes. You know, it's just one progressive step after another. And that's how it builds. That's how it gains momentum. And then again, before all of a sudden you realize like this is out of control. I've lost control. There's no place for me to stand up anymore because everybody else has been eliminated. Everybody who had been victimized in the past or was targeted before is gone. And so now it's just me left standing here. And, you know, again, you can hear it in the way that he describes it because, again, he's a smart guy. Like this guy, looking back, he can see the different signs and, and where it went along. But, but there's nothing he can do now. And he feels that shame in looking back at it and knowing the role that he played in it. But, again, there's nothing you can do. Like he says, even, even just the fear of being ostracized or of standing alone makes you step in line, makes you, you know, stay complicit. It's also genuine uncertainty. And he's going to go into that more here in this next little bit. So here, so we're going back to the professor. So uncertainty is a very important factor. And instead of decreasing as time goes on, it grows. Outside in the streets, in the general community, everyone is happy. One hears no protest and certainly sees none. You know, in France or Italy, there would be slogans against the government painted on walls and fences. In Germany, outside the great cities, perhaps, there is not even this. In the university community, in your own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom certainly feel as you do, but what do they say? They say, it's not so bad, or you're seeing things, or you're an alarmist. And you are an alarmist. You are saying that this must lead to this, but you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes, but how do you know for sure when you don't know the end? And how do you know or even surmise the end? On the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party, intimidate you. On the other, your colleagues poo-poo you as a pessimistic or even neurotic. You are left with your close friends who are, naturally, people who have always thought as you have. But your friends are fewer now. Some have drifted off somewhere or submerged themselves in their work. You no longer see as many as you did at meetings or gatherings. Informal groups become smaller. Attendance drops off in little organizations and the organizations themselves wither. Now in small gatherings of your oldest friends, you feel that you are talking to yourselves, that you are isolated from the reality of things. This weakens your confidence still further and serves as a further deterrent to, to what? It is clear all the time that if you're going to do anything, you must make an occasion to do it. And then you are obviously a troublemaker. So you wait, and you wait. But the one great shocking occasion, when tens or hundreds or thousands will join with you, never comes. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and smallest 
Thousands, yes, millions, would have been sufficiently stocked, shocked. If, let us say, the gassing of the Jews in 43 had come immediately after the German firm stickers on the windows of non-Jewish shops in 1933. But of course, this isn't the way it happens. In between come all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next step. Step C is not so much worse than step B. And if you did not make a stand at step B, why should you at step C? And so on to step D. One day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible enough of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy. And some minor incident, in my case my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying Jew swine, collapses it all at once. And you see that everything, everything has changed. And changed completely under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you were born in at all. Now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. And so again, like all through this, you can hear, you can just hear the sense of shame, like the fact that he didn't pick up on any of these as he refers to them as imperceptible little steps. They're things that at the time, and again, if you don't stand up to step B, why should you at C? And then so on to D and, you know, so forth. You know, uh, it's crazy because reading this book, you really you really feel for the average person. There was no way to know where this was going to go at the beginning. Like, that's the one thing that is very clear. I mean, things obviously crank up in like 1938, kind of just leading up the, the year before the war. That's when they started to burn synagogues and started to, again, they, you know, after the synagogues were burnt, then they rounded up the Jews, the ages 16 to 65, claiming that it was for their own protection. Because, you know, clearly there was violence out there. People were burning the synagogues and they had to round them up and take them, you know, take them away just for their own protection. And so, and then, you know, most of them were never seen again. They were sent off to concentration camps, to ghettos, to wherever. And then, you know, sure as shit, soon enough, their families followed them. And it's just, it, it's it's disturbing, I'll be honest, reading this book. And again, I'm focusing on one chapter of it. I highly, highly recommend that you guys read this book. It's again, They Thought They Were Free by Milton Mayer. You know, it's stark, um, but it's incredible. And now again, going back to kind of, you know, when he had the realization. So he says, suddenly it all comes down all at once. You see what you are, what you've done or more accurately, what you haven't done. For that was all that was required of most of us, that we do nothing. You remember those early meetings of your departments in the university when, if one had stood, others would have stood, perhaps, but no one stood. A small matter, a matter of hiring this man or that, and you hired this one rather than that. You remember everything now, and your heart breaks. It's too late. You are compromised beyond repair. What then? You must then shoot yourself. A few did. Or adjust your principles. Many tried, and some, I suppose, succeeded. Not I, however. Or learn to live the rest of your life with your shame. This last is the nearest there is, under the circumstances, to heroism. Shame. Many Germans became this poor kind of hero. Many more, I think, than the world knows or cares to know. And so this is where, again, the, the author steps in. He says, I said nothing. I thought of nothing to say. Like you can you can just hear and again you can hear the way that he describes it like how 
how he's come to terms with it. And many people, many average people, when they did come to that realization in Germany, killed themselves. You know, there was a lot of suicide following the fall of Nazism, not just for fear of, you know, being taken over, being attacked by, you know, Russia or the Western allies, but out of the sheer shame of realizing what they were complicit in, what they were silent to, what they witnessed and did nothing. You know, as they'd see their neighbors, their friends who were Jews growing up and they got taken out of the town. There's there's another story in this book. And again, like this book, I could probably spend 10 weeks just going over this book. Um, more than that, because I think there's like 30 chapters. So I could probably spend 30 weeks going over this. But, you know, there's a story earlier in the book of when one person, like they're, actually it's the same guy, I believe. Uh, one of his friends had been, a Jewish guy. He was very successful, lived in a in an apartment in the town with his family. And, you know, him and his wife were looking for an apartment because things were scarce. You know, soldiers were in town. Uh, everybody was kind of ramping up. There was a lot of activity. And, you know, the, the apartment opened up and it happened to be his old friend. And he comes to this realization that, you know, I can't believe that I'm I'm taking this from you because the Jewish guy was, you know, he wasn't allowed to work anywhere being Jewish. He wasn't allowed to provide for his family. He was being sent away to a ghetto at this point. And the point where he actually talks to his friend, his friend can see it in his eyes. Like he knows that he's having this internal struggle of I'm, I'm taking your home like this. They both knew it wasn't right. And it's amazing because the Jewish guy actually says, he, he kind of gives him a little bit of comfort and he says, hey, look, if it's not you, it's going to be someone else. So just take it. And like this guy, he expresses just the level of shame and the level of guilt. Everything just lumped on him at once because he realized what he was doing. He realized, again, what he was complicit in, but it was too late. You know, there was nobody else left to stand up. There was nobody else standing between them. And this, he just does such a good job. Like all, all 10 of these guys, like you, you know, some of them don't feel nearly as much remorse. Some of them aren't as aware. You know, I think it's because of the fact that this guy was, you know, quite highly educated. He, in the aftermath of everything, he was able to kind of put things together and realize how terrible things were and it it hits him like a sack of bricks and you know he he specifically talks about this moment because he came face to face with somebody who was being persecuted by this ideology this regime and it was somebody who he knew who he respected who he knew was successful smart you know somebody who again he he respected on the level with him and he saw what it had done to him and his family and that they were being sent off. It's just, it's a stark reminder to the fact that you don't, you don't really have to be complicit in something. You don't have to actively do something. It's just the fact of standing by and watching it all happen and pretending that life goes on and that this kind of stuff isn't happening behind the scenes or just out of your, your line of sight. That's all it takes. And, and that's what he's, he's again saying, he, he says it so well. He's like, it's not just the things that I did. It was more importantly the things that I didn't do. He never stood up in a meeting. He never stood up for a colleague. He never 
stood up when it came to hiring a guy just based off of his race or his party status, because that's what it ultimately came down to, was as long as you were signed on to the party, you could get work. If you didn't, um, sorry, you're excluded from any kind of social event and you can't work. And it's just, it's it's terrifying to watch or to read it, right? Just to Just to know that all it takes is to do nothing in the face of evil like this for it to for it to succeed now we're going back to the book and we're almost done this chapter here so this is again uh continuing on from the professor i can tell you my colleague went on of a man in Leipzig, a judge he was not a nazi except nominally but he certainly wasn't an anti-nazi he was just a judge in 42 or 43 early 43 i think it was a Jew was tried before him in a case involving, but only incidentally, relations with an Aryan woman. This was race injury, something the party was especially anxious to punish. In the case at bar, however, the judge had the power to convict the man of a non-racial offense and send him to an ordinary prison for a very long term, thus saving him from party processing, which would have meant concentration camp, or more probably, deportation and death. But the man was innocent of the non-racial charge, in the judge's opinion, and so, as an honorable judge, he acquitted him. Of course, the party seized the Jew as soon as he left the courtroom. And the judge, I asked? Yes, the judge. He could not get the case off his conscience, a case, mind you, in which he had acquitted an innocent man. He thought that he should have convicted him and saved him from the party, but how could he have convicted an innocent man? The thing preyed on him more and more, and he had to talk about it first to his family, then to his friends, then to acquaintances. And that's how I heard about it. After the 44 putsch, they arrested him. After that, I don't know. I said nothing. Once the war began, my colleague continued, resistance, protest, criticism, complaint, all carried with them a multiplied likelihood of the greatest punishment. Mere lack of enthusiasm or failure to show it in public was defeatism. You assume that there were lists of those who would be dealt with later, after the victory. Goebbels was a very clever here, too. He continually promised a victory orgy to take care of those who had thought that their treasonable attitude had escaped notice. And he meant it. That was not just propaganda. And that was enough to put an end to all uncertainty. Once the war began, the government could do anything necessary to win it. So it was with the final solution of the Jewish problem, which the Nazis always talked about but never dared undertake, not even the Nazis, until war and its necessities gave them the knowledge that they could get away with it. The people abroad who thought that the war against Hitler would help the Jews were wrong. And the people in Germany, who, once the war had begun, still thought of complaining, protesting, resisting, were betting on Germany's losing the war. It was a long bet. Not many made it. That's the end of that chapter. And so again, like, this judge who who really had a moral conundrum, he knew that if he acquitted this guy... He was going to hand him over to the Nazi party for their form of punishment rather than being punished by the law, which would have, again, as they had put it, because it was racial mixing, a race injury, it would have been very serious. He would have gone away for years. But in the aftermath, he realized that if he had done that, if he had, if he had rather than doing the lawful thing, if he had done the moral thing, he would have saved this man's life. And that's heavy. Like, that is heavy to think about. This is from a judge, somebody who upholds the law, and he understood that. He knew that at 
that point, he could have done the moral thing while going against the law at the time. He could have saved this man. And there are countless other stories of that. Like there's, you know, there's one of the guys who, the way that he rationalized joining the party, and, you know, I, I can't say that I necessarily disagree with him because he joined the party knowing that if he didn't, you know, he wouldn't be able to participate in anything. He wouldn't be able to get a job. He wouldn't be able to help anybody. So he joined with the intention of saving as many people as he could with the fact that he would still have money. He would still have the ability to help people. He would still have a little bit of, you know, sway in public, in public perception. But even he felt terrible after the fact because he said, you know, how many people did I save? Maybe five to ten, maybe. But he carries the weight of the entire Nazi killing machine on him. He takes the weight of every single innocent life that they killed. Because in his mind, and this, you know, again, I can understand it. In his mind, he was complicit just by going along with it. You know, he said that if he had made a stand and if he didn't didn't join the party then that may have emboldened other people not to join the party. That may have emboldened people to stand up and just stand together. Because that's the thing with authoritarianism, is that all it takes is for people to stand up to it. You know, even Stalin, when he was, you know, rising to power, it wasn't until he declared that, you know, they have no more enemies to vanquish, that then he had total authoritarian control over the Soviet Union. And I understand that these two ideologies, fascism and communism, are, you know, ideologically opposed. But the fact that they both came into a totalitarian, authoritarian system, you know, that's where the similarities come in here. All it takes is people standing up. And the earlier, the better. Because again, that group of people gradually shrinks until it's just you standing there. Or, you know, it's just your your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. It's just them left standing in the way. And that's really easy to eliminate at that stage. It's too late, you know? Like like what they were talking about in this book, you, you come to the realization that it is too late. There's nothing left that you can do. And the weight that that carries on these people is crazy. Again, it's more so the things that they didn't do than the things that they did do is really what haunts them in the end because it just takes a little bit of effort. But yet when they were walking around the streets, you know, everything seemed good. People were happy. Everybody was working. You know, there was, you were kept busy. Your mind was kept off of what was going on just underneath the surface. And, you know, that's, uh, again, this book, it's fucking heavy. Like, I'm not lying. Like, this book, it's, um... I think it's important. I think it's an important read. Um, because, you know, this kind of stuff, it it doesn't go away. Um, it's part of human nature. Uh, there's, you know, there's something in people that like to, you know, they like to dominate others. They like to assert their will. They like to mandate things. And it's, it's something to just keep an eye out on. And, you know, you may, people may say, oh, well, what are we talking about? Nazism in the 30s in 2021. Well, again, I'm going to reiterate. What the fuck is the point of having a written record of history 
if we can't glean some knowledge from it? Why bother? You know, if nobody's going to read it, if nobody's going to pay attention to the lessons that we've learned the extremely hard way through especially the 20th century, then what's the point in talking about it? What's the point in writing it down? You know, if it gets shot down as hyperbolic or alarmist every time that somebody brings it up, then why do we even keep it? You know, we might as well be burning books at this point if we aren't going to learn from them or at least glean some lessons from them. Anyway, um, that's it for today. That book's been consuming my mind. I've probably read that chapter front to back 12 times now. Um, It's incredible. The weight that that guy carries is just, I don't know, it's, uh, well, he's long dead by now, but um, I I can't even imagine conducting these interviews, you know, hearing about people's firsthand accounts. And again, like the author, he's, he's an American Jew which he doesn't tell any of them that he is a Jew uh, throughout this book because, you know, even he runs into a couple of story. I'm rambling now, but he runs into, you know, some of these people who still, you know, they still are very anti-Semitic even after everything that has happened. And they'll say, you know, oh, I could spot a Jew from anywhere. And, you know, that's why he kind of keeps it hush hush and kind of laughs to himself because, you know, that's who they're, they're talking about all this with, but it's an incredible book. Um, I honestly, I could not recommend it enough. Again, one more time, it's called They Thought They Were Free by Milton Mayer. Read it, study it, talk about it. You know, because these people back then, they wished they did. And then it was too late. See ya. All right, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you found some value in this week's episode. If you did and are interested in more content like this, please rate, review, subscribe, and recommend the podcast to a friend. I really appreciate all the feedback you've given me to this point and look forward to hearing from you again. As always, the podcast page is The Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Facebook, at Jacket Plaid on Twitter, and at Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Instagram. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for the continued support and especially to those of you who reach out weekly with comments on each episode. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you all again soon.